A naked American man stole my balloon. What? Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. We sure do love our werewolves on McQuaid Arcade. In many ways, they represent the perfect amalgam of a lot of our favorite things. Ancient lore, supernatural themes, and a fascinating vision of human enhancement as a proxy for technology. And, of course, a heavy concentration of focus in the 80s. Thus far, we've discussed some werewolf movies in perhaps not the most flattering terms. In our defense, however, Teen Wolf and Silver Bullet aren't quite the films we remember from our childhood, though they had their moments. So we thought that instead of whinging about things we didn't like, we'd talk about what we absolutely loved, the paragon of werewolf movies, An American Werewolf in London. An American Werewolf in London is a 1981 horror comedy film both written and directed by the great Chicago native John Landis. The plot is very simple, and the film is really compact. It follows two American backpackers, David and Jack, who are attacked by a werewolf while traveling in England, resulting in some pretty frightening changes for both of them. Apparently, John Landis wrote the first draft of the screenplay for the film in 1969, but it was trapped in a betwixt and between. It was thought to be too frightening to be a comedy, and too humorous to be a horror film. But, with the massive success of Animal House and the Blues Brothers proving his filmmaking prowess, Landis was finally able to secure financing for its production more than a decade later. And it was released on August 21st of 1981, but we were only six years old then and most certainly didn't see it in the theaters. We saw it a few years later when it came to VHS and we nearly peed our pants in the comfort of our own homes. It was both a critical and commercial success, but more importantly, it has become a cult classic. It is, in my not-so-humble opinion, the finest werewolf picture ever made. I have to agree. And unlike the other two werewolf movies we've covered in this show's one-year history, uh, 20 episodes, now three of them, have been about werewolf movies. I believe, if my math is correct, that is approximately 30% of our episodes are all about <laughs> werewolves. Woo! The math checks out. I did it. Uh, no, it, this, this one, finally we're doing a werewolf movie that holds up, even though, even back in 1981, it was a throwback. I saw this great interview with John Landis about this movie, about American Werewolf, and he said he wanted to make a, con a contemporary version of an old movie, an old school monster movie. Mm. And the first thing he pointed out in this retrospective is the fact that this movie is not a comedy, despite the fact that it's really, really funny at times. Uh, and that's not surprising that a John Landis horror movie would have this undercurrent of comedy to it. I mean, just look at his other work. His first movie he ever did was actually a horror comedy called Schlock. And he made it together with Rick Baker, the special effects guy who did this movie and so many others who we'll talk about in a bit. When they were like just 20 years old, John Landis wrote it and directed it. And he starred in it. He played the main character of Schlock, who was this like prehistoric ape man in a funny gorilla suit. <laughs> John Landis said that this script, American Werewolf, got him a lot of jobs because it was just so good. It is so funny, but it's also really, really scary, even though, like you said, while most people loved it, they thought it couldn't actually be made because it was too scary to be funny and too funny to be scary. It is this amazing blend of horror and comedy, but it's definitely a horror movie first and foremost, I think. And I want to talk about, as we love to do here on the show, I want to talk about Roger Ebert's 
review of this movie from back in the 80s because it touches on so much that I want to cover here. It's a great jumping off point. Now, here we are in 2021 saying this is the, the probably the best werewolf movie of all time. Roger Ebert did not seem to agree with that assessment because he gave American Werewolf just two stars back on January 1st in 1981. He says, An American Werewolf in London seems curiously unfinished as if director John Landis spent all his energy on spectacle set pieces and they didn't want to bother with things like transitions, character development, or an ending. And I definitely want to talk about the ending of this movie. I think it's fantastic and it fits perfectly, but it's definitely uh, abrupt, I guess you could say. Mm. That's why he's mentioning it here. He goes on to say, Landis never seems very sure whether he's making a comedy or horror film, so he winds up with genuinely funny moments acting as counterpoint to the gruesome undead. Combining horror and comedy is an old tradition, but the laughs and blood coexist very uneasily in this film. Again, while I I personally think it's pretty perfect, I get why he would say this, because unlike something like Ghostbusters, right, which blends humor and horror those elements so smoothly that you can't really distinguish them from each other. Mm. Unlike that, American Werewolf can be very jarring. There's humor one moment and then someone getting just bloodily disemboweled in the next. (laughs) It's this crazy juggling act, right? That just keeps you on your toes as a viewer the whole time. Definitely. He mentions the scene also in his review with the massive multi-car pileup accident that happens in Piccadilly Square in London in this movie. And he says that between this, the parade in Animal House, and the almost nonstop collateral damage that we see in Blues Brothers, big car crashes are kind of John Landis's thing, which they kind of are, I guess. It's funny. He always fits them in there. He loves them. And he goes on to praise the, the impressive special effects by, quote, young makeup wizard Rick Baker, but says horror fans already got to see a big, impressive werewolf transformation on screen the year before in The Howling. Now, we've seen, we watched both of these scenes for the show, and they're very different. And The Howling is very cool. It's a very different kind of movie, very different kind of werewolf. Mm-hmm. The special effects in that, that sequence was done by a guy named Rob Botton, who was a protege of Rick Baker's. Roger Ebert says, he praises the effects, but he says, everything else is disappointing. It's as if John Landis thought the technology would be enough. We never get a real feeling for characters. We never really believe the places. I have to disagree here for sure. I feel like... As you said, it's a very compact movie, but I think we get just the, the right feel for the characters. We know enough about them. We get a good feel for their personalities. They're all believable in this crazy, fantastical situation. John Landis said he wanted to make this fantasy, but keep it very grounded, very realistic. This is an old school monster movie, like we said, that's about the monster. It's about a werewolf that goes around eating people, period. This is like, it's just a random guy, because that's how it works. Some poor random guy becomes a werewolf. He gets bitten and becomes a werewolf. He's just some poor schmuck, <laughs> as John Landis describes the the werewolf in general as like a monster and a character. He likened it to having cancer. Whoa. He's like the poor guy who becomes a werewolf. It's like he has cancer, but instead of killing him, it kills everybody else. That's really heavy. Yeah, right? It's really wild. And that's what we get in this movie, just this look at this disease for all intents and purposes. And like you said, the story is is very simple. It's these two college students... They're backpacking through England. They wind up at a creepy pub at night, and they're told there by the locals to stick to the road and stay off the moors, which, of course, they don't. They wind up getting lost. They're out in the fog, and they realize that something is stalking them. Every time I see this movie, it's so tense, this scene, and it's before anything even actually happens. That opening sequence, when they're lost walking out in the moors, 
it's an incredible scene for a lot of reasons, in part because it's really parsimonious. There's no, you know, no big set pieces. There's no special effects, but it works. It's this claustrophobic sort of narrow light pool around them, right, in this dark moor. And then the sound, this, this, it's unbelievable. The sound stage is so frightening. You hear the wolf coming closer and you hear it in the distance and it seems like it's all around them. Like they just convey using obviously there's no fancy surround sound tools but just with the stereo the sound stage and the feelings that they evoke it is still one of the most frightening moments in cinema and then suddenly jack is killed david is bitten within minutes of the movie uh the move the start of the movie bam there's werewolf stuff going on and the rest of the movie is just an undead zombie ghost version of jack visiting david telling him that he has to kill himself because, number one, he needs to end the werewolf bloodline so Jack can rest in peace. That's part of the werewolf lore of this movie. He's sort of trapped in, in limbo. And two, he needs to not turn into a werewolf himself in the next full moon and kill even more people, which, of course, he totally does until the end of the movie when he's stopped. That's the whole thing. That's the whole story. And I guess I can see why Roger Ebert thought we didn't get much in terms of, of characters because it is this quick snapshot into these characters' lives, but I think we get just the perfect amount. I'm totally with you, and I get it, and I think that's part of why I like this film so much. It's tight, and it's so much to the point that it almost could be considered a short. You know, it's it's really that kind of narrative, but it's just long enough to be a feature film, and I think that's part of why it really stays with me compared to some of the more bloated and bloviating films where they fill two and a half hours you know, we've seen recently. This is so tight. The actor who plays David is great, but I think Zombie Jack kind of steals the show. He's hilarious. We see him a few times in the movie. The first time is when David is, is still in the hospital after the attack. And he looks like a, like a freshly mauled corpse. We were just talking about how gross and juicy he is. He's got just pieces of shredded flesh hanging off him in ribbons there's like a dangling piece of flesh that's like so nauseating and so brilliant i mean it really does look like skin falling off of him he gets progressively more decomposed as the movie goes on the last time we see him like he's just a skeleton guy half his face is gone amazing work by rick baker let's talk about his effects and makeup work on this movie because it, it wouldn't be the movie it is without them they're they're really kind of the backbone of this film in an interview we found online, John Landis said, quote, I want to show the pain. I want him to be able to move around. He's going to pull his clothes off. We're going to see the whole body change. So figure out how to do that. Yeah, he had an idea for this full body transformation where you see the whole thing happen. It's never been done before. And he tells Rick Baker, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> figure that out. And he insisted that it all happen under really bright lighting. He wanted the audience to see everything he didn't want anything hidden by shadow, any kind of, you know, spooky horror style lighting, which, you know, is a tool that Rick Baker had to figure out how to do this whole thing without. And he pulled it off. He did it. And it was amazing. He continues. I always thought if your body is going to go through such a huge change, it's going to hurt. I wanted it to be painful. 
unquote. This is so important and such a contrast to the old Lon Chaney transformation where you basically get a character sitting quietly there while soft transitions show new patches of fur and makeup appearing with each little blurring transition. It's so goofy. This is real. And one of the things I loved is that it's realistic anatomically. I mean, not that there really is such a thing as werewolf to my knowledge, although Time Life books might disagree. Uh, There was an incredible way to approach this and think about the connections, though, between human and lupine or technically canine because I read an interview where Baker was kind of looking or maybe it was John Landis was looking at his dog so he really got a lot of the concepts for this just from a dog obviously wolves and dogs are very closely related but this human lupine morphology Baker quoted it by saying I the way I decided to approach the transformation was through comparative anatomy Uh, And I I think this is right on. This comes through and makes for this believable transformation that still makes my heart race all these years later. I also really appreciate that the design decision carries all the way on to the final form. You know, we talk about this a lot, the wolf man guys, where it's sort of a guy with hair and and big claws. But I'm really interested in, in more of a wolf shape you know the morphology of the wolf and this is something that is really in between it is spectacular uh one of the things i love is when the transformation is happening you see the hands stretching right you know we think about a dog's anatomy and we kind of all have similar bones right but when the hands stretch it's because the dogs are kind of walking on their fingertips you know it's just a little bit different and same with this feet and then you see all these anatomic changes happening the face the jaws stretching out i just it's incredible One of the things that I read, too, was that Landis wanted the beast to appear as, quote, a four-legged hound from hell. And in this wonderful write-up at MonsterLegacy.net, the writer Omega puts it this way, quote, Whereas Baker was leaning more towards a bipedal, more humanoid creature, Landis was adamant about the design following his idea, a powerfully built quadrupedal monster. Unquote. And holy cow, they deliver. Uh, in the same article, Landis is quoted as saying, quote, my favorite shot of it in the picture is the guy in the tube when he collapses on the escalator and looks down and the wolf enters like that at the bottom of the escalator. That's my favorite shot because it looks so effing big. Like, what is that? You know, and you don't really see it, but you see it. I like that. Unquote. That escalator shot is you know, really the first time we get a look at the wolf itself. And this guy is like, yeah, I've been chased through the subway by this wolf thing. And we get sort of an aerial shot of him collapsed on the escalator. And suddenly from the top of the frame, this wolf, giant wolf thing, just very slowly walks into view. And it's crazy. It's terrifying. Like he says, it's perfect. You don't really see it, but you see it. Rick Baker is this legendary special effects makeup artist guy. And we've talked a lot on this show about practical effects versus CGI. And in a, in a Q and a with the playlist Baker shared some really great thoughts about CGI. He said, I think the worst thing about digital technology is that it's made a lot of sloppy filmmaking. This article says, nevertheless, Baker insists that he's less critical of the technology itself than how it's used. I'm excited by that technology. It's another trick in the bag of tricks for how you can fool people. And I think it can be used a lot more creatively. We had eight millimeter cameras and you would put a 50 foot roll of film in and you'd have to turn it over halfway through to do a split screen. And it was a real accomplishment and hard to do. But kids today have so much stuff available. Why are there a bazillion really incredible films that kids have made? And I don't know, maybe it's too easy. I think that's a really interesting point. How, how much you do when you have constraints and when you have less to work with and you have to get creative with stuff versus being able to just easily create anything via CGI. 
that totally makes me think of a quote that I read from Orson Welles, who said, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. The world has this movie, American Werewolf, to thank for arguably the greatest music video of all time. Michael Jackson loved American Werewolf in London, and he wanted John Landis to do a video for Thriller. So John Landis sent Rick Baker the tape, and he he listened to the song for the first time. He hadn't heard it yet. He was listening on a Walkman, and he had another tape, little tape recorder in his hand that he was kind of taking stream of consciousness notes on. And John Landis had this idea. He wanted zombie dancers, and Rick Baker had just assumed that the dancers were going to take a long time to learn the dances and stuff. And John Landis was just like, oh, no, no, no. These are professional dancers. You get them in in like two days. They learn the choreography and they're ready to go. And he's like, I, I can't do anything in two days. I need to take like molds of their faces and I need to do all sorts of stuff. So he decided that the first, because he can get started on it right away, the first zombies we were going to see was going to be him and his team because they all had like life masks made and they can work on themselves. So they are the first zombies you see coming out of the graves are by far the most detailed. Then he was able to, he came up with some cool, quick ways to do the dancers and stuff. It's just a very cool story. And they ended up making that uh, making of featurette that we saw a bunch of times on cable over and over and over. We used to watch over it over right? and over. It was, it was so good. I mean, and I remember it played on live TV. I feel like there was an excuse to play it on live TV. Like every day we would just always see it. And he was very opposed to John Landis coming in with cameras and recording the whole process. But he said, I can't tell you how many people have come up to him in the years since and said that little documentary is why I got into special effects and makeup and stuff. We get some really great effects work too, in the numerous dream sequences that there in the movie. And there's a lot of them. This this movie does this cool job of telling the story of the metamorphosis that's going on within David in these dream sequences that just sort of happen, right? We don't see David falling asleep and then like it goes to a dream <laughs> sequence. You never really know until it gets crazy, like what's a dream and what's really happening. And it's in these dreams that we get subconscious werewolf stuff like David naked out in the forest stalking a deer and then jumping on it and eating it and tearing it apart he has this out-of-body experience where he sees himself in the forest in his hospital bed with alex who's his nurse who he ends up becoming romantically involved with and staying with after he gets out of the hospital some really wild stuff and again you're not sure exactly what's going on at first and you realize it's a dream the biggest dream sequence we get and a pretty iconic horror movie scene is we get david back at home with his family and a squad of these monstrous, like, demon soldiers break in, and they murder everyone, and they're shooting up the place and set it on fire. And John Landis talked about this scene, about how a Jewish kid, David's age, would have grown up hearing, like, true horror stories of Nazi Germany, and these demon soldiers definitely evoke that kind of imagery, like this this thing he would naturally be scared of, and the whole werewolf monster thing. Uh, I don't think they actually have any kind of Nazi imagery or emblems on their uniforms, but it's it's very clear who they represent. And it's in this scene that we get this crazy dream within a dream, right? Because there's this big, scary moment after this happens, and you think David is waking up. It is so frightening. I 
to put it in the way they said in Silver Bullet, almost made lemonade in my pants. You think he wakes up and they're in the hospital, but then all of a sudden, bam, there's another monster soldier guy killing everybody. It's it's brilliant. It's so well done. And as a kid, I mean, that really upset me. Like, that scene was so scary. It's such a frightening sequence. And the images, even though, you know, looking at it with a little bit of a more distance today and, and a higher quality TV and by the light of day, they don't look as scary as they did. They actually do look a little bit like masks on these guys. These guys are masks, but right, yeah. The images themselves are frightening. They are kind of demonic. They have big fangs. They have these horrible faces. I mean, it is is scary and what they're doing is frightening they're shooting up the house and they have flamethrowers and i mean it's it's really violent and destructive oh yeah his little brother and sister are getting killed and uh yeah Yeah. crazy stuff again this horrible imagery juxtaposed with some just genuinely hilarious moments like when david wakes up after his first time as a werewolf going out killing people he wakes up naked in the zoo in the wolf pen and we get this funny montage of him trying to get out of this <laughs> this occupied zoo naked and uh there's this great scene where we see a little kid at the zoo holding a bunch of balloons <laughs> and david's like hey kid come here let me see your balloons and he, and he grabs the balloons and like hides himself with them and runs away and the little kid goes up to their mom and says a naked american man just stole my balloons <laughs> He must have said that quote about a thousand times growing up. It's just such a quotable line, such a great moment. It's so great. There's a scene that takes place in like a pornographic movie theater where David kind of ducks into to to hide. And there's a movie playing and there's a, a naked man and woman on the bed. And all of a sudden a guy barges in. What are you doing here? You promised never to do this kind of thing again. I never promised you any such thing. Not you, you Twitter. I've never seen you before in my life. Oh, sorry. And he walks out. <laughs> and then they just start going back to having sex. The phone rings at one point and she picks it up. She's like, hello. No, I'm sorry. This is a wrong number. It hangs up. And then she goes back to having sex. It's the weirdest. It's the weirdest. You could tell John Landis was just coming up with just the weirdest things to put in a pornographic movie. It's hilarious. A genuinely funny movie. I mean, there's no wonder why, like, so many people consider this movie a comedy, even despite the, the horrific stuff that's in it. But, it's again, it's it's so jarring, the juxtaposition between the two, but it's so brilliantly done. Oh, my gosh. It really is. Well, we have to talk about one of our favorite things here on McQuaid Arcade, and that is parameters. I'm obsessed with understanding limits and understanding rules and how things work. And I love how they did it here. They left enough mysterious that they don't, they sort of don't eat where they poop. You know what I mean? Sometimes people try to explain so much and they over explain and just make it stupid. And they really kept it all pretty vague in the best way, but they added a touch of the mystical here. And I I like that a lot. Instead of trying to say it's a special DNA virus that (laughs) somehow penetrates, like we don't need that. You know, they just, we have the sense that it's a, it's a true curse. And I love the moment where they kind of break the fourth wall in one scene where David asks if a silver bullet is needed to kill him. And the undead Jack says, be serious. Would you? Just like, come on, quit, quit talking about movie lore. This is, you know, this is not real stuff. This, this is not how it goes. And then something that I picked up, not really until this rewatch, was this idea of a circle of love. And this is maybe a stretch, but it was really kind of haunted me and still haunts me. So I thought it would be worth talking about. There's a scene where David and Alex are talking. They're in bed. And David says, Bella Lugosi bites Lon Chaney Jr. And he turns into a werewolf. And she says, why are you telling me this? He says, no, listen, Claude Rains is Lon Chaney's father, and he ends up killing him. And Alex says, so? 
And David says, well, I think that a werewolf can only be killed by someone who loves them. And it kind of felt like a throwaway line to me at the time, you know, sort of pillow talk. But then I realized that at the end of the movie, that is exactly what happens. At least one interpretation of what happens. Alex is standing there in this dead end alley. And she says to David in his wolf form, I love you, David. And his snarl softens for a moment. And then he leaps towards her and is immediately killed in a hail of bullets. Let's talk a little bit about the music. While there actually is a nifty score by Elmer Bernstein of Ghostbuster fame, but this is a few years before that, uh, and it really has some haunting melodies, but I have to say it's somewhat relegated to the background in this film. There's only a couple of scenes where it comes up prominently, and I, I do enjoy it. And it's very, it's very Elmer Bernstein, like having heard his style in a few movies. It's actually characteristic and, and quite uh, kind of his signature sound. I really like it. But the soundtrack itself is really where it's happening, and it's really quite fun. All of these songs are referencing the moon. So it starts out during the opening credits with this really smooth rendition of Blue Moon, which I love. It kind of sets this little bit of a smooth tone and kind of a little bit of a forlorn feeling. And then uh, Van Morrison's Moon Dance is playing when David and Alex are being intimate for the first time. And then we get CCR's Bad Moon Rising when David nears the moment of changing to the werewolf. So it's kind of revving you up. It's a little bit of that, you know, kind of almost rock and roll feel to it. And then in almost this Kubrickian move, this soft ballad-like version of Blue Moon plays by Sam Cooke during the agonizingly painful wolf transformation. Of course, this is punctuated with curses, groans, screams, and finally mm. this really weird, discordant, doo-woppy version of Blue Moon again starts just after David is shot while Alex is sobbing, and then it plays over the end credits. Let's talk about that, because that is the ending that Roger Ebert mentioned in his review that he clearly did not care for. So, uh, as you said a moment ago, werewolf David is kind of trapped in a dead-end alley, and there's like every police officer in London kind of at the at the mouth of the alley with guns. With the best, and Alex, the best English police sirens that... <laughs> my favorite sound. And their, and their hats, their funny little hats. <laughs> uh, and Alex like gets past them and she goes down the alley and she finds David. And ultimately, David is, is shot by all the, all the police officers there. Alex is sobbing. And then, bam, this crazy doo-wop version of Blue Moon starts playing. Credits, that's it. That's the ending. Uh, Roger Ebert said, I won't reveal the ending such as it is, except to say it's so sudden, arbitrary, and anticlimactic that although we are willing for the movie to be over, we still can't quite believe it. <laughs> I think the ending is is perfect. It's the perfect way to end this fever dream-like snapshot into David's life as a werewolf. And like I said, this movie is, it's about the werewolf. So when it's dead, that's it. That's the end of our story, and I love how John Landis ended it. In another interview I saw with him from around this time, I think, around the time this movie came out, he talked about how there have always been cycles in Hollywood, different kinds of movies, popular at different times, but through it all, there have always been monster movies, horror movies, mm. because people love them, and he loves them, and this movie feels like just a great big love letter to them, and with it, 
I think we can both agree that he gave us one of the greatest ever made. A poor schmuck is hiking through Europe with his best friend, and a wrong turn on the wrong night leads to tremendous misery. But it also leads to finding things out about the world, about each other, and remarkably, about the transcendent power of love. While some werewolf stories glamorize it almost as a superpower, an American werewolf in London gives us a much more raw, unsanitized rendition of what truly can be called a curse. Despite this, David finds hope and even love. And while he wasn't necessarily a hero, in the end, I'd like to think that love is what made him pounce, knowing full well it would be his death, thus sacrificing himself. Love was the key to breaking the curse after all. And on that note, stay limber.